I'm Laura Vinroot Poole. For 20 years, I've owned Capital, an internationally recognized specialty store. Capital has never really been about fashion. It's always been about people. What We Wore was created to share the meaningful journeys that inspire me. From the designers and friends I meet on the road to the men and women with whom I work each day. Everybody wants to know her We've had so many memorable guests this season, from the fashion industry to the beauty industry and even the NFL. Join me in taking a look back at the wild ride of 2020 through the moments of joy, challenge, and meaning, and stories of what we wore along the way. Maria Cornejo has been a designer for over 30 years. Maria and I talk about her early life as a political refugee, her vast career, and her personal growth over the past few years. We'd left with clothes on our backs, so we didn't leave with anything. And did you, did you understand at the time you were, how old were you? I was 11. 11. And so did you understand political asylum or kind of why you had to leave? Was it... I did, but you know, I think with children of political refugees, I think, you know, we understood also that my mother wasn't very happy. You know, they had tortured somebody in front of her. Mm. And the only reason she got away is because uh, one of the judges at her trial had basically recognized her. And he had been, you know, my godfather had been in the, the Air Force, mm. but he was now dead. And this guy had cleaned most my uncle's orderly when he was younger and he recognized my mother and basically gave her 24 hours to leave the country wow and so the un got us out and so you went to peru first and then went to england yeah we were in peru for a year waiting for asylum my dad had applied to with my mom they had applied to cuba england and canada because my dad could speak english and my dad was a bit of a socialist, so he wanted to go to Cuba. So I thought I was going to go, to, I was totally brainwashed. So I was going to go to Cuba, do ballet and do farming, which sounds amazing. I do, yeah, it does. <laughs> you know, so, but at the time, you know, they used to come, um, you know, they used to call uh, from the embassies and they would send somebody around and basically they would say, okay, the next plane to Havana, we have five seats. And they would just pick the people that were on the list. Wow. And the day, the day they came for us, we went there. We had come to the beach stupidly. <laughs> you know, after a year of doing nothing, we were just getting to the point that, you know, we can't just sit waiting. So we went to the beach. And then so that we missed that one. And the next one that came up was England. Wow. So I ended up in England. And what, what part of England? I ended up first, we ended up in London, in Shepherd's Bush, which was pretty amazing because uh, at the time it was like, 1975, you know, it's glam rock. There was just so much going on in fashion. I thought everybody was so glamorous. All the, even the garbage men had blue eyes, you know, I thought they all looked like film stars. <laughs> English kids were evil to me because they thought I was, you know, Pakistani, they used to call me all sorts because I'd been, you know, I hadn't been to school. So I got really dark and we were just playing on the street all the time through. So, you know, children are really racist and mean at that age so so it was, it was tough in some ways but then there was you know 
pretty amazing to be in a different country. I mean, I had this vision of London as, you know, Sherlock Holmes and fog and, and all of a sudden it was not quite that, you know? <laughs> and do you remember the clothes and sort of how you transitioned fashion-wise? Well, the clothes were at the time, you know, we were going uh, as refugees, we had nothing. So basically there was a house which smelled very moldy. This is why I don't really like vintage anymore. Right. Um, where, where the refugees were allowed to go in and pick clothes and bedding and anything you needed, but it was, you know, it was other people's stuff. So I'm very weird about vintage. <laughs> Steve Smith is a beloved former NFL player and a friend. That is one thing that I know about you is your commitment to excellence and everything that you do. I mean, all around. How do you, where do you think that came from? Mm. Is that your mom? Well, I mean, my mom and my dad, they still work to this day. Yeah. Um, Blue collar, hard worker. Um, But I think it has to do with um, striving for perfection. Mm Mm-hmm. Which is a pain in the neck. Yeah, and really hard to reach. Yeah. <laughs> but um, you, you get really close. <laughs> but I've learned uh, last couple of months I've been focusing on don't, don't strive to be perfect. Strive to be excellent. Yeah. And as I've kind of embraced that more and more, I've relaxed more and more. Sometimes mm-hmm. I'm like, yeah, I get to it when I get to it. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it's actually been working out pretty good. <laughs> I think it's worked really well. Seems like no. I'm talking about the relax. <laughs> your recent, oh, okay. The yeah. relaxing to excellence, because then I I can sleep and I can wake up with a little bit of peace. I used to. I'm always an excellent sleeper, but I would wake up not being able to fully commit to a good, well rested sleep because I was so worried about getting up, and I would at times get up at three in the morning just to accomplish or finish, whether it's podcasts or notes for work or watching film and now it's like I can get up do whatever I need to do but I'm not getting up at 4 4 or 5 a.m. to do the work I'm getting up at more 5 o'clock or 5 30 get a little run in clear my head and then attack whatever I'm doing with a clear mind with some sweat I can have breakfast and before it used to be I would only be able to do that job impressed that after a game competitors will like hug each other i'm always like how do you do that because there (laughs) there is a mutual respect not there's 53 guys that play yeah not all 53 guys are hugging all 53 because there's some (laughs) things that have happened yeah the guy's like i ain't hugging that dude (laughs) you know he pancaked me right but for the most part it's about an 85 percent that Guys respect the heck out of the other guy in their craft because they understand. How hard here's here's one of the things I think you got the fashion women miss. Mm-hmm. No matter what in sports, you know and respect and understand what that person goes through. Mm-hmm. So you can't poo-poo on their effort. Mm-hmm. Even though they may not they weren't very good, mm-hmm. you still respect the grind. And the preparation. And the and preparation yeah. and the work. Mm-hmm. You guys do the same thing. You guys, you you can't even acknowledge that, like, look, like to get this fabric, right, to get this this measurement, to get this look, how many hours and how many sketches and how many cups of coffee, how many mm-hmm. uh, sketch pads and papers and pencils 
and all that stuff was taken. And still you're like, I got to ball it all up and start all over. I would say it's rare. You women can't go. I respect her. Mm, Rare. Dang. (laughs) It's tough. (laughs) It's cold. (laughs) That stank. Well, you shouldn't go into fashion, Steve. I'm not. (laughs) Well, I would say that for me, it has changed. And for me, it changed probably 10, 15 years in as well that I realized that there was no support that that if the I say this all the time, but if this was just going to be about clothes, it was going to be really boring. For me, it's always been about the clients. It's always been about my team. And my team is mostly young women, um, women in all stages of their lives. And I think that what was clear to me in the South was that women were not, have not been raised to expect a fulfilling career and a family. And I from the beginning of my career, kept on losing women. They would come right after college. They'd be amazing. They get, get married and done. Yep, done. Especially in the South. Yes. Married, be stay home mom. Yeah, and it which was, isn't. It's nothing wrong with that. I mean, there there isn't, but there, but it, but it was hard because you had these very promising. You put yourself in a box. Really smart young women that could have really made big careers. That, You're dancing around it, but if that's a guy, uh-huh. he's lazy and wasting his gift. Well, and I think the thing is, Steve, is that in if it's a guy also, I mean, if you a young woman, a young man, they both have careers, she has a baby. His No, they have a baby. They have a baby. Well, yes, but his life doesn't change. I mean, his career doesn't change. Her she has to make the choices. Hers does typically. I mean, and and stereotype for sure, but in, You sure did. But mm, in my mm. but in my in my industry, I guess in my career, that's how it's been. And so I have really focused on mentoring the women that I work with and helping them to understand that they should expect fulfilling work in their life. Because how do you, I mean, back to retiring from professional sports. I mean, how do you wake up in the morning if you don't have something that you're working towards, Mm -hmm. if you don't have a goal? Uh, And certainly it is to raise your children to be wonderful people. (laughs) But, but, really that, I mean, how do you, how do you even live if you don't have fulfilling work? Mara Hoffman is a New York-based designer with a spiritual presence and deep wisdom. Speaking of meaningful moments and energy and spirituality, I know that the birth of your son, afterwards you, you experienced a little bit of a reckoning in your life and in the fashion industry. Can you talk about that and sort of moving to be a more sustainable business and production model and sort of what, how that happened and what that meant? I was aware, I was in awareness that I was part of a really harmful industry years before I made the shift and within my own company. You know, I had friends like, speaking of which, like Pamela Love, who she had built her company. She built it later on, but she had built it with that ethos of sustainability front of mind before it was a conversation. And so there were there were people around me who I, I knew existed that had been in that space. But when I started to really feel personal discomfort with my own contribution to it, I was already many years into my company. I was 
when I made the shift, the company was 15 years old. Yeah. So right. I'd been feeling it for the years, a few years leading up to it when there was more awareness and more conversation around it. But I really hit my wall when we were 15 years in and my son was three uh-huh. and I was just in one of those big kind of hit the wall moments of change or die you know and I think we all experience those whether it's like the work you're doing or through personal aspects that you hit these like unmovable parts and you can't stay in your habitual space anymore and it's really really uncomfortable because it can be terrifying to think like how do I change everything I don't know how to do this but I went to my director of production who was on maternity leave and I sat on her couch and I just kind of let it go and cried and was like, do we close the business? Because I can't let this be my legacy. I can't let this be what I leave to my kid. And what is he gonna do with all the stuff we're making? You know, when you want something to change in your life, you've you've got to understand that that comes with risk. Yeah. And it comes with- Sacrifice. It does. And it comes with challenging yourself to be uncomfortable. And I think most people, fair enough, spend their life avoiding discomfort um, for at any cost. And that we've been taught to do that, to like just find coziness, find comfort, go to the comfort, go to the comfort. But when really like we don't change and we don't become better and we don't evolve on any level when we stay comfortable we just don't do it so there's like an intoxication with comfort yeah but it really keeps us stagnant yeah so i'm not i'm all i'm 100 percent here for dipping into great you know runs of comfort i love comfort <laughs> i do my god but like i know that i can't hang out there for way too long Um, Or otherwise, like, I'm probably not facing things that need facing to, like, evolve on the higher level. Do you think you know that from meditation and yoga or you just know? It's just experience. I know it from, like, coming face to face with yuck, you know? (laughs) Like, that's it. Where you're, like, we all go through these waves of, like, the yuck and the yum in our lives. And it's, like, and then once you realize that yuck isn't terrifying, it's so, ugh. (laughs) <laughs> but but it's so fertile. It's like when yeah. the greatest shit happens is when you are forced to like get off of your routine and your habitual existence. And you know, in comparison to this time right now and what's happening, so much has changed in our lives and in the business in these past seven months. But I keep coming back to it that we were in a rut. It was a beautiful a beautiful rut. Like one that like, you know, you a right you would choose to have uh, in comparison to like the suffering of the world, but, you know, still nonetheless a rut. And when you're kind of pushed out or you have enough strength and courage to choose the exit, that's when you see like there's so much more that can be done. Jonathan Cohen and his partner and CEO, Sarah Leff, joined us for a beautiful discussion on partnership. I'm really fascinated by your partnership and kind of how that got started. For me, I knew that like, if I really wanted to do what I had to, wanted to do and like to the best of my ability, 
it would mean I couldn't focus on this business as much as I would like to. So having a business partner was essential to me. And the great thing about Sarah and myself is that it just happened. It was very organic. We were friends. I think that's why it's worked so well because it wasn't this like forced relationship. It was just the both of us wanted to do this together and start this company together. And we actually said our freshman year, one day we'll do this. And we had no particular, I think we both felt like we would be working for someone for five to 10 years before considering it. And then one day we just decided it was time. One of the things I've also really always loved about your business is that you really are, and I don't know if you are legally, but you seem to be equal partners. A lot of the young designers we go see, it's like a person in the back room <laughs> making the, the business decisions and sort of you know, dropping the hammer on you. But I, you've always been really out there and part of it, Sarah. And, and I think that really works. It really has been helpful. Like we fill each other's weaknesses and you know, add strengths to the situation and the conversation. And we're both heavily involved in all process between like partnerships and design elements and down to like, you know, different fabric strategies. And I think it's so important because we both need to be having the conversations when it comes to the clients with like in fittings, as well as how the business is doing and how, how each style is performing. But Sarah's really great because she, she never has hindered my creativity. You know, she'll, she'll manage it in a sense that it's like, okay, you want to do these kind of over the top pieces, but then you need to really focus on giving me like these types of pieces that like stores can really buy into. So she's very good at balancing me. (laughs) Ann Mashburn is a former Vogue editor. I love talking to her about building her business and raising her five beautiful daughters. You had a significant moment of challenge and change, I think, that you shared during the pandemic. Will you talk a little Mm -hmm. bit about your two daughters and the degenerative disease that they've been diagnosed with? and, And also just the story about sharing that and how that how that happened and how it was received. So we have five daughters and, you know, a big, fantastic family. Two of our daughters were diagnosed like about three years ago with this very incredibly rare disease. And I'm so grateful we were able to figure out through DNA testing. Did you have signs along the way and, and were the signs the same in both daughters? No. Well, in hindsight, you know, yeah. It's, it's crystal clear right. that there were clues all along, but they actually both present a little differently right. with the disease. So they're very, very different. But the, the issue was that there was never any, one, the one of them, the younger one had a slight language processing thing. She spoke mm-hmm. really softly. She stuttered for a while. You know, anytime I had her tested, there was nobody that could ever say what her disability was. And there's right. so many people out there who have, you know, oh, it's, it's just a, it's a disorder. You don't know what it is, but it was never anything. And I would say again, that because there were five of them, they were all just, you know, the, the, more capable ones would help with them. Right. It just, they were, they were all in the mix. Yeah. And, and the second daughter was like, there were no signs until my daughter who, who is 24 now. She, when she was about 15, she developed a hand tremor. And uh-huh. so we started seeing a neurologist then and one thing led to another and they were diagnosed with this disease. And, but it, because it's so odd and rare and it's, they, they have motor issues that are affect their, their walking. 
So that's mm-hmm. gotten worse. And then they have cognitive issues, which have also gotten worse. But they're really, like if you were to chat with them, they, they, are, they're on, they don't seem that disabled, mm-hmm. but they really, really are. You know, you just, it's really hard to describe to people. So my daughter, Louisa, who worked in our store for a little while, mm-hmm. you know, she just would not get like some social cues. Like maybe she would talk to the customers too much and right. the other girls would be folding sweaters. And you were like, Louisa, get your act together. What is wrong with you? Right. When in reality, she really couldn't. Like she, you cannot get your act together if your brain is shaped a certain way. They, I would describe them as being very moderately disabled in their ability to walk and move well now. Though four years ago, we were hiking in Switzerland. So right. it's been a, a big decline. But they're really like teenagers kind of in their head. But why I shared it was because the Harriet, who's 24, she's always worked for us. And she worked in the design department for my great design team, doing like intern type things. But she's really, really pretty. So we would use her as a model often. I had a friend who always said, oh, a picture tells a thousand lies. And I was like, that is exactly, like you couldn't have a better metaphor for this than Harriet. So true. Everything looks so great. But in the end, she's this person whose life is, is, will be forever changed because of this disease. So, you know, I just didn't feel right. I do this, this every two weeks I write a, a fashion thing and it, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's a huge creative outlet for me. I love it so much. I was like, this just feels too weird. I can't sell anything right now. It just feels awkward. I know you have the same exact yeah. moment in time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, I, my oldest daughter, Elizabeth, helps me with this. And she's so creative. And she's like the protector kind of, of our brand, too, because she knows Sid and I so well. So she never lets me do anything bad on social media. <laughs> she's really <laughs> awesome. But I said, I, I just have this idea. I really want to do it. And she, at first, was really negative. She was like, Mom, you just you can't. You can't. Mm-hmm. And then I said, just... Finally, she said, well, just try and, and see, see what you come up with. And I will never forget, she, she was reading it at her desk. She called me and she just was like sobbing. Mm-hmm. And I was just so grateful because it moved her so. I, I just, I thought I, was it, it ended up being a huge help to yeah. our family because it kind of introduced it in a way that was careful and beautiful. And I learned a lot from, I had been thinking about it for so long that the, the words just tumbled out. And what kind of responses did you receive? You know, we, we were joking about it. I, I said, and again, you won't know this because you're not as old as me, but there was a movie called Brian's Song and it was, I know was like it. every guy <laughs> cried in it. Yes. I, I, I said, oh my gosh, this is the Brian Song of 2020 <laughs> because so many men called me or Aww. said, oh, I wept through it. And yeah. I, you're so... So, so well, the, and people love y'all you know. so much. And I think I think that that's one of the things that's so interesting about this whole COVID experience is that people just want reality, I think. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I think people no, want no, connection and yeah. realness. And they're so sick of the fake, you know, fake photos. But see, I thought that I was feeling this way so much before. And I know you were too, because oh this is what social media does. And that's, yeah. so that's why, you know, it had been in my head because I was like, oh my gosh, nothing is like this. And yeah. I have always been somebody who felt more comfortable just putting it out there and saying how, how, hard it was rather than how easy it was I just really I I come from a background where there was lots of bad stuff that happened and not to I don't I don't know it just has been a part of me so I but I it just it felt like I honored them and I can't even tell you how how 
happy the two daughters with both Aww. Harry and Louisa were from it and the yeah. other sisters. It was just, you know, and now that you've a relief a tool, probably too yes. to be able to share that and to to really say like this is what is happening. This is who right. I am. Right. Yeah. So they sent they've sent it to their friends and they've said this That's is amazing. really what's going on with me. It is so hard and it is so sad and it just made me so appreciative of all of people with intellectual disabilities and physical disabilities all over the world. It was like my, my, something went off in my head and I'm just this really changed person for it. What We Wore is produced by Capital and Balta Creative Media. The original song, Someone So Enchanting, was composed and performed by Britt Drazda. is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at queencitypodcastnetwork.com.